0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're getting semantic to understand the deeper meaning behind some of the foods we love. First, we'll look at the big debate happening around the word milk. Who the hell are you to tell me what is the name of my product and my landscape and everything we've cared about when, you know, you don't have anything invested in except to put out a little money to buy
0: it? <laughs> it's our entire life.
1: Then we get the lowdown on the language of cider. So the first thing that's really confusing about dryness is that it has nothing to do with how something actually feels in your mouth. And finally, we get our fill of tiki talk.
2: You don't walk into a tiki bar like, oh yeah, this is what Polynesia is probably like. Like, it's, it's supposed to be like fantasy and stuff. That's the hard part. It's so easy to do tiki bad, and that's where it gets a bad name.
1: Tune into this week's episode of Meat and 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. By some historical accounts, sushi was being served at restaurants in the United States in the early 1900s, with the first sushi restaurant opening in the U.S. in 1906 in Los Angeles. But anti Japanese sentiments and restrictions on immigration led to a sharp decline in the acceptance of Japanese culture and cuisine in America. It wasn't until nearly 60 years later when in 1966 in Los Angeles, a Japanese businessman named Noritoshi Kanai opened a nigiri sushi bar inside a Japanese restaurant called Kawafuku in LA's Little Tokyo when sushi began to make a strong comeback. Later on in the 1970s, Ken Sousa of Kim Jo in Los Angeles invented the California roll, and by the 80s and 90s, sushi restaurants could again be found in much of America, with over 4,000 sushi restaurants now open in the United States. But the vast majority of those sushi restaurants of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and still today, are a la carte, where you can mostly order hand rolls, and it's fairly inexpensive. But sushi has also generated millions of food-obsessed fans on the higher price point end of the dining spectrum, people that are searching for new chef counter experiences, which can be called omakase or kaiseki, that can cost well over $100 or $200 per person. Today, we'll be talking with chef Nick Kim. He's a partner and the co-chef of Shuko in the East Village, and they only serve omakase and kaiseki menus. Shuko, which... Chef Kim operates with his partner and co-chef Jimmy Lau, received three stars and was a critic's pick from Pete Wells in the New York Times. Both men are alums of MASA, and they worked together at Netta prior to opening an incarnation of Shuko in the Hamptons and then opening their brick-and-mortar location. Chef, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So on this program, we always start way at the beginning. We start... Uh, in the childhood, uh, I wanna talk about Los Angeles. Uh, you were uh, born there? Yes, and raised. And uh, your parents are first generation. They Gr- came over from Korea? Yes. And so, where did you live in LA? And what was the experience like having um, first generation parents and you being a first generation American born kid?
3: Um, grew up in San Fernando Valley, but raised in Los Angeles over the hill. Um, Growing up was pretty unique because our neighborhoods was just multi-culture, it wasn't predominantly Korean, it was just like similar to New York, just all, all walks of life. It was a great way to grow up for sure
2: and were your parents uh did they move here specifically for a, a job or a career or did they were they seeking out just a better life and then they they made their way in a new career once they
3: came i think all of the above mm-hmm. um my mother was a, a hairstylist and then and still now and um her career really didn't change uh, my father's a businessman he exports and import products uh, and so coming to America, it was sort of, uh, he adopted that system here. And, and But my mother's career was similar. And
2: what was your childhood home like? Were there, uh, were you rebelling against uh, the Korean culture that your parents had brought here? Absolutely. Were you, were you like, <laughs> I want to be. An American kid, I want
3: to go to the mall and skateboard. I mean, like, what did you do as a kid? Yeah, absolutely. All of the above, mm-hmm. again. Um, growing up um, in, in L.A., uh, skateboarding was big. Uh, small but big in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, grew up exactly what you could picture a, a kid from L.A. would do uh, when you're young getting Um, into trouble skating in pools or right Uh, I was yes I was more ramp so I did a lot of ramps and pools Uh Uh, street skating at that time was still uh, not as big as it is now Um, but uh, yes a lot of neighborhood kids we would just put our money together somehow and uh, build ramps and create chaos, but then be home by 5 p.m.
2: <laughs> and uh, was it a strict household? Like, were you, did you do a lot of family dinners? Was was that a big part of your culture?
3: Dinner was definitely a, a big part of it. Like, it wouldn't start until my dad would be home and uh, everything would be shut down um, while we're having dinner. Um, <clears throat> Um, we wouldn't answer phone calls or when my father did, uh, it, it would be very brief. But yes, dinner was very, I mean, every, every mo- lunch, dinner, breakfast, anytime there was eating involved, it was very important. <laughs> and who did the cooking? Um, growing up, a lot of, was my mother and my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very fortunate to be, uh, I grew up and raised by my, my grandmother and anyone that has grandmas, they know uh, how special they are.
2: And... So did you spend any time cooking alongside
3: them? Did you get into Korean food when you were younger? No, um, no. Just, um, you know, I think uh, growing up Korean in a k- Korean household, uh, you don't really realize it, but food is a big part of your life. And as a child, gr- as an adult, um, <clears throat> it's just a very big part of uh, Korean culture for sure. And do I have this correctly, that
2: you did travel to Japan before with your mom when you were younger, and then you kind of, you were intrigued by Japan at, at a young age? S-
3: something like that, yes. My mother was a, a hairstylist for Vidal Sassoon back then, and so she traveled a lot to Japan and overseas, so, um, <clears throat> and at times we would go and, and still have family, like my uncle, her brother lives in Tokyo, and so uh, growing up, definitely uh, Japan was part of our our. our Do you remember any specific
2: times when you were young and you went to Japan, maybe first experiences with Japanese food or like, I don't know what Japanese food was was like in LA at that time. But was it really common that your family would go out and and eat Japanese food in LA? Or was it like you went to Japan and it was the first time that you would you would experience that Mm -hmm. type of cuisine?
3: Japan, Japanese food in L.A., uh, as far as our, our, our family, when we went out, was very average, very normal. You know, mm-hmm. the teriyaki chickens and stuff like that and the California rolls. There was nothing spectacular. It could have been, but it, it, I was just too young to understand, maybe. Uh-huh. Um, and I remember going to Japan and seeing Beef Bowl, Yoshinoya, which is kind of big in L.A. <clears throat> and then I remember that was one of the first uh, connection. Uh, I'm like, wow, this is <laughs> this is cool how there's bowl in L.A. and there's one in Japan. And I realized that there was a I, of course, it's Japanese, but I finally remember making the connection. And when you come when you come back to the
2: the United States, you enter your teenage years and you score the most luxurious, traditional, glamorous Job of all you start as a dishwasher at a restaurant. (laughs) Uh, the one of the best ways to get entry into a restaurant because you get to watch and maybe you rise. So, what was your experience like, uh, getting that first, uh, that first job at sort of the
3: the bottom of the totem pole? Right. Uh, I was actually underneath the dishwasher. (laughs) Um, so I was like the dishwasher assistant, uh huh. Um, just in the way a lot. Um, uh, just you know being a teenager and just uh, wanted to belong but wasn't sure how I belonged to the restaurant I just knew that around this chaos that I, I kind of enjoyed it uh, it kind of reminded me of skateboarding um, during uh, working at a restaurant for a child or a teenager it was just sort of free and uh, organized chaos um, and that sort of I remember um, intrigued me And.
2: You know, it's kind of like a big jump to have a, a teenage job that looks interesting, it's intriguing to really make the next jump, which is that you decided to go to culinary school. And what interests me a lot about the point in, um, in chefs' lives is when, at a very young age, you make a decision to do something very concretely about it. Some people fall backwards in it, mm-hmm. but making the decision to go to culinary school is really diving all the way in. Um, first how did you come to that decision and second what did your family feel about what maybe at that time wasn't uh wasn't a super traditional job career choice
3: um yeah uh, um i think especially uh being korean and raised in a korean household uh i remember mentioning to my dad he wasn't he was actually confused he was like (laughs) uh i don't understand and um my mother was a little bit, because she's sort of an artist, she kind of understood where I was coming from. And, and it wasn't about just the restaurant. She just wanted me to just try things and, and, and just sort of seek things out. So uh, I, I know she, she sort of supported me. My father was a little bit different.
2: Was there, so there was, there was sort of a, a bit of a pressure to maybe go to a traditional four-year
3: college and get a degree, maybe? Absolutely. Um, I I went to college uh, uh, for freshman semester, and I remember um, just not really focusing in school, but really thinking about work. And I remember uh, thinking like, why am I like not focusing at at school, which I paid for versus like uh, washing dishes, you know, and putting the plates away. Um, And I remember I wanted to tap into that thought, why am I so torn and, And I think the more hours I spent in the restaurant, the more I realized at an early age that this is sort of what I wanted to do. But without, you know, obviously a teenage sort of thinking. And that's sometimes very powerful because, you know, you think you're, you know what you're saying, but you really don't. Yeah. I just, I just was lucky and fortunate for sure.
2: Were you pretty focused at culinary school or did you kind of mess around and not get serious till later? Well, um,
3: the first time I ever left home, uh, L.A., I moved to San Francisco, um, so I was by myself for the first time, Um, so I had to be serious. Mm -hmm. I had no other choice because I realized uh, when I moved first time out of my home that if I leave something there, it doesn't get picked up. My grandma's not going to pick it up and fold it or wash it, and so... and. Moved to Tenderloin, San Francisco, is pro- it's a wake-up call. You know, it's not, the, uh, it's not Beverly Hills. You know, it's a very a real grown-up you know, neighborhood. So I woke up and grew up really fast in San Francisco, for sure. Started to fend for yourself a little bit. Yep, definitely. And I, I think I even worked harder back then, too, because I was going to school. I was working morning and nights and just really focused. Uh, just trying to keep afloat I remember.
2: so were you going to school and
3: also working in a restaurant right right, right. Oh, okay and, and um and i remember um you know really just going back to your questions i was really sort of uh focused as a as a young age because i was not that good <laughs> um i think if i was better maybe i would maybe not put so much pressure and thinking that i have to work so much but um uh, I just wanted to get better. So I just really had that in my head.
2: And what made you feel like you weren't good? Because a lot of teenagers, I uh, speaking from experience and also just knowing what my friends were like back then, you, ha- you can often have this mindset of invincibility. Mm-hmm. Like, I know everything and I am going to succeed. Uh, what made you kind of the opposite of that? What made you think like you needed to really grind so hard because you weren't good yet?
3: I think, like, growing up, like skateboarding or playing basketball or just doing things and knowing that, okay, I could be better at this or somebody else is better. And, you know, that even playing basketball, if you're missing shots, you're like, okay, why am I missing these shots, you know? So I I think I was my own, you know, uh, worst sort of critic, too, which also helps to sort of—I remember when I was younger— Uh, while everybody was sort of um, enjoying their weekends, I wanted to sort of spend more time in the kitchen, you know, just put those hours in and see why and how I could get better. And at that point, did you see a
2: future for yourself in fine dining? Did that seem like the direction you wanted to go in?
3: Absolutely. But at that time, it seemed so far away because I was so not good. (laughs) You know, I was struggling just to keep you know the simple things going you know and 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 turns out those are all natural things you know i wasn't born with the natural michael jordan gift so i had to sort of go through the regular procedures and um and just get better and stronger and and and, and be a more alert and you know all of the above do you think that
2: all that repetition somehow immediate, like later on, trans the the immediate repetition of culinary school, that translate later on to the precision of Japanese style of cooking? Or is that sort of like a, you went in a very sort of different route?
3: Well, I I was, my original training is classically French training. Mm -hmm. And and so, but I think uh, um, anyone that cooks, there's a secret hidden, or not secret, very loud, uh, love for Japanese culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know one cook or chef that doesn't get it. You know, um, mm-hmm. uh, there's always that in- that 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 love for it for sure.
2: And And before you did get involved in in Japanese cuisine, you uh, moved to Hawaii and you kind of got a crash course in what a French kitchen experience could be like right, right?
3: in In San Francisco, uh, I met Chef uh, Ian and he was coming from France for uh, he was working at Alan Pressard uh, in France, and he was scouted to come to Hawaii to open a restaurant. And he stopped in San Francisco to uh, help a friend out where I was working at. and uh, he saw. That I was sort of struggling. So he approached me and said, You know, when you're ready to sort of take the time to learn, you know, come to Hawaii and uh, you know, I'll show you the mechanics. And, and that's exactly what I did. And so, how much time
2: did you spend there? And and was that a true French style kitchen? Like, was it the intensity that, that Absolutely. we expect Absolutely. from that? <laughs> yeah,
3: because uh, uh, Chef Yang came and he came with uh, uh, a brigade of French chefs from France. so. Me and like one server were the only non-French person in the restaurant, um, <clears throat> which was pretty cool and pretty like exciting because it just sped up the the knowledge and exposure and and um, the intensity for sure. And. That was your really kind of first true cooking Absolutely. job out, right, of, out right. of culinary school. Yes, because they were like, this, you turn the knob to the right and the fire will come. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this thing is called a sheep pan. <laughs> you know, there was all these lingos and things that you did in the restaurant, which I was trying to mimic in San Francisco, just for playing, like role-playing, just pretending, mm-hmm. but I was really trying to. But in Hawaii, it was like the real thing, and I was trying to put that in place. Did you feel... Like you belonged, or that
2: did you have imposter
3: syndrome at first, um, or neither? I, I think I was sort of uh, so like focused and so determined that I was sort of uh, had this. Um, there was a, a chef Jacob, who's I'm a good still good friends of, and he's one of the chefs that came from France with Ian, and he's the one that sort of uh, mentored me. Upwards, You know, he would just, he's the one that, like, washed my face, cleaned my fingernails, and okay, this is where we start. And he uh, sort of, you know, gave me uh, huge verbal lessons, you know, uh, romantic lessons, cooking lessons. And I didn't even know that was all happening because it was just considered work. Um, and there were nights where we get off, and we spent four or five hours just talking about service and food. And until this day, we're still close like that, so... Um, he definitely made me feel not like out of place or anything like that do you still generally bounce
2: ideas off him like do you call him and say like, "Hey, this thing happened in the restaurant. I wanted to run it
3: by you um, does he work in the food industry still or yes, he still does he he's he's um the funny thing is that I look at him still as chef Jacob, but he looks at me like now chef Nick uh-huh so it's like this weird. Thing that we have now because he's like, Why are you asking me? I'm like, Because your thoughts matter. (laughs) You know, he's just, so it's kind of, it's like this reverse role. In his eyes, you're an
2: equal, but you never look at it that way. And you never will.
3: Never will, because for me, it's just that Chef Jacob, you know?
2: When you concluded your time in Hawaii and you decided that you were time for your your next stop on your journey you came back to Los Angeles right and
3: you were working again for a French chef right Uh, this time uh, I I, you know I sort of uh, by spending time with all the French chefs and uh, realizing what they do in order to uh, move on to the next restaurant and learn from other chefs is to scout the chefs and that's sort of what I was doing for a year like which chef should I want to work for, or go for, and all this, and Chef Ludovic, who was the chef at Laurent Jury then, who's the chef at um, Toimec now in L.A., uh, was coming to L.A., he was 24, you know, just coming with power, energy, and just, at that time, like really avant-garde food, um, so, you know, I wrote letters, and, you know, back then there was no emails or anything like that, so I just wrote letters, no responses and stuff, and, and um, I had, the, and then there was a point in Hawaii where the chef knew that I wanted to kind of move on and learn other things, and, and the chef helped me write this letter and contact Ludovic, and in return he replied. and. Um, And so when you
2: say, you know, avant-garde cuisine, it was rooted in French technique and French flavor. But if you can remember, what were some of the things that were happening at that restaurant which made it different than a a traditional French brasserie or even a a fine dining French restaurant?
3: Right. So, like, this will be my second restaurant going to Laurentierie. So anything that was remotely colorful or just something... Eventful was like wow to me. Mm-hmm. So when we were doing like these untraditional inside-out tureens, that for me was like whoa, you know. And it took like eight hours, two days each day, and the 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 manpower, the the hours that people were putting into to create something was sort of the avant-garde for me. Usually in Hawaii, we, you know, some of the prep didn't take so long. It was just like cut, put together. And, and at Laurent there was an actual procedure on 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 how to create things, not just cut or put it together. And that was sort of avant garde for me, that it just took like four people to put something together as well.
2: Was that a young kitchen? He was very young. Right. You were young. Was right. there were there kind of older guys that anyone was leaning on or whispering like, "Hey, I got a question," or was it just really a bunch of young guys kind of? doing something
3: new and out of the norm it was you know looking back now yes the oldest guy was the owner (laughs) mr ferry and uh everybody the kitchen was all young again it was all french besides me and uh uh, angel who was uh, uh in the meat station he was sort of there forever and he was the till this day one of the amazing cooks i've ever seen um And, yes, it was just all young chefs, so, you know, there was a lot of good energy, a lot of creativity at the time, too. Um, And, um, you know, back then, uh, we would have about up to, like, 20, 30 sauces that weren't held by any, you know, additives. So those were sort of the challenges as well, how to keep the sauces from not breaking, Mm -hmm. how do you sear the perfect langoustine 50 times a day, you know, Um, hit it at a perfect degree without, you know, cryovac machines and stuff like that so so it was just a huge learning curve you were doing things that you had never done before Right. it was coming it was like going from community college with no disrespect but and then going to Harvard. you know it was just like the kitchen was beautiful you know it was all custom made everybody had their own station and it was all a true brigade in every sense of it um and what, what? How did you enter into that kitchen?
2: Did you enter in like on colds, or did you have a non-specific role, and then you raised up the ranks? Like, how did they, as being a, a non-French person entering again mm-hmm. a right. French kitchen, w- did you have to fight your way for respect?
3: Um, no, not much fighting. Everybody was pretty cool. Everybody was young, so there was a lot of like laughter,s and like jokes being played. Like mm-hmm. all, when I walked in all my station there would be nothing but like soy sauces and sesame oil but it was all for fun it wasn't like any malicious or anything weird Mm -hmm. everybody was like at the end of the day like we all hung out with each other too at the end of the day because uh these uh, french cooks they didn't know really la so it was like uh it was off off the court on the court was all like kind of a good team Mm -hmm. and all we did was talk about food and that was the like the funny thing, we're just like bunch of nerds, never talking about girls or something that really matters. But like, come off like a twelve-hour shift and talk about food for the next four hours, and then it's five in the morning and we do it all over again.
2: That's how you can consolidate ten thousand hours of, yeah, of right. learning into right. a couple years. You then, just you never turn it off. The then, switch is always exactly. On. And we
3: were working six days a week, and on one days off, we were also hanging out. So it was like this probably constant. trying a new restaurant, and, right? <laughs> and we we actually every other day off, which was, I think, Sunday or Monday at that time, we would actually go to our friend's or girlfriend's house or someone's house that was available at the kitchen, and then everyone would kind of create a little baby dish uh, outside of, you know, and, and you know, we're drinking, having fun, but we're actually, the, the, the day off was meant for each person to create something. Outside of the restaurant. So
2: it really never stopped. It never stopped. It was like, stopped, right? it was it like was, an R and D potluck day right. it where was you really just really like
3: Harvard, like just on like all like I just remember even days off going to bookstores and and just looking at books if I'm not hanging out with them. It was just constant. It sounds pretty magical. It sounds like you were, it sounds like everyone
2: was all in all, together. Right. right and
3: right. you just are
2: Pushing each other upwards, right? right? It's right. like plates, tectonic plates rubbing against each other. It's just Absolutely. there's no other direction to go right. except learning and moving right. forward.
3: And, and I remember at that time there wasn't not many new people coming in because the team was so tight and it wasn't this like turnover thing. People were committed, you know. And um, you know, did we have bad days? Of course, just like any. Real life situation, but it, it really was, felt like a, a genuine team, and everybody really wanted the, the restaurant to do well.
2: We're going to take a quick break here on the line, and when we come back, we're going to start talking about Masa, and then, of course, your move to New York and your projects as well. Stick with us here on the line on Heritage Radio. We'll be right back.
4: Great. <laughs>
1: Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk, combined with expertise and affinage, is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Schwa was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit RothCheese.com.
4: Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Damon Bolte. And I'm Souther Teague. Together we host The Speakeasy, a show where we discuss cocktails, spirits, wine, beer, tea, coffee, and all things in the liquid universe. Yeah, our guests range from bartenders and brewers, alchemists and ambassadors, roasters and regulars, hippies and homebrewers, and every expert enthusiast in between. <laughs> Browse episodes of The Speakeasy wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. If it was a groupie, if I was, I don't remember. So what if I'm wrong, sue me. That's your girlfriend, Yes, yeah, she know about me. I keep it on the list so you don't know about me.
2: Welcome back to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. Today on the show, I'm joined by Chef Nick Kim. He is one of the partners in Shuko, which is located in Manhattan. And before the break, we were talking a lot about Los Angeles and you coming up in the food world. Uh, Something dramatic happened when you read about um, Masa and you just, what clicked in you that you said, I want to be involved in that?
3: Right, um, so going back to L.A. again, Laurent uh there was this myth about this Japanese man having a small little restaurant and he's charging $500 serving blowfish and just, like, uh, if anyone's cooking at that time, early or late 90s, about 2000, we didn't hang out with, you know, wealthy people, so we were sort of disconnected to this urban legend. Mm-hmm. And... Um, And fast forward, uh, Chef Ludovic, eventually when I left uh, Laurent Jury, he had sent me to France to continue my training and and, and getting some more exposure. And while in France, uh, my uh, ex-girlfriend at the time would save me LA Times uh, restaurant reviews and save like a month of it and send it all out. And then one of the uh, deliveries had Massa in it and he actually was in an article. Like, for the first time ever. He was real. He was real. <laughs> we knew he was real, but we were like, God, is this, like, not real? Because, like, nobody we know knows. But obviously, we don't hang out with wealthy people. Yeah. So. And he was reviewed, got the, you know, the highest stars and all this. And I'm like, wow, this guy does exist, you know? And I did this classic thing again and, and, and thought about what I want to do. And and, and and throughout these years, I'm like, why is this Japanese thing all in our heads, you know? When we're talking with cooks, we're all pretending to like we're just teriyaki sauce and, you know, like just the amateur Japanese ingredients. But nonetheless, this Japanese love affair was always around. And when I finally read that article, did the classic thing, wrote the letter, no response. And then, you know, after a couple months later, I was like, you know what, I'm going to just leave and come back to L.A. and and, and, and just knock on this man's door. And. What do you think
2: that it is about Japanese cuisine that makes it really respected as a true art form?
3: Because um, I think going <clears throat> exactly what you're saying, it is art in sort of Japanese uh, food culture. Um, you know, uh, it's sort of, yes, it's to consume, to live, but as a cook, when you create, it's really an art. Um well, a lot of times when I'm cutting, I'm not cutting to produce quantities of, of, of sales or for customers. It's really like cutting for a purpose of how do I cut this the best way, even though I cut it a billion times. Like every cut, every time I'm making sushi or every time I'm assembling something, it's like per plate, per sushi, per item. And, and for me, those are like very, art comes from an artistic point of view. Sometimes it feels
2: almost, from the from the outside perspective, it can feel almost like a show. It's less about right. eating, and it's more about a performance, and th- the technique almost leads flavor. <laughs> right.
3: No, absolutely. Because, you know, you and I could have the same tuna, and I could just cut it all crazy, and you cut it all beautiful, and my tuna's not going to be as tasty as yours. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
2: and, and so... You're intrigued by what's happening at Masa. You go and knock on the door. He's charging exorbitant prices for for tasting omakase style menus. You go there. What happens? Do you
3: get the job? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, being young again and like not really thinking things through, I go there straight from LAX and with my luggage and. I'm ready. I have my knives. I'm ready to go. I haven't really told my mom and my family, my sisters, and everybody that I I moved back to LA um, quite yet. So, uh, because I wanted to stop at the restaurant to see if I even got a job first, and um, and and immediately I knew that uh, it wasn't going well because it lasted like 30 seconds, and you know he gave me the like goodbye forever bow, (laughs) you know not see you later bow, but like don't come around bow, and um, just went home with you know my tail between my legs and but my family was happy they were like oh you're back <laughs> you know i'm like yeah but i'm um, didn't you, you know? said by the way I, I came home for a job and i didn't get right it. <laughs> right
2: and so how did you end up in the Massa family because obviously we fast forward and and you end up working there and you end up moving to new york so right you earned his trust and respect somehow how did you get your foot in the door and how did you rise at masa
3: i literally put my foot in the door like i literally did that because i came Like uh my plan was okay let's just go once a month and see what he does or something and then you know i did that for like a couple of months and it just got more annoying to him and i just recall the last time um uh, i think he just sort of felt bad and he was just like okay um uh just come back tomorrow leave your all your silly knives at home just just you know just come and you know i just cleaned for for a while and now i'm the best cleaner ever uh, of anything because <laughs> that's what i did you know um and and for me that was like silly in the beginning, but it made so much sense at the end of the day when I when I got when I start to get it, I'm like oh wow okay that's why he had me clean and sanding things and you know. Uh, uh, Cause the whole time it's like, oh, I would just want to get down. I want to cut something or do something. And he was just like, no. <laughs> Cause there's so much more to it than that. Right. right. He put me in a real, like sort of apprentice, you know, he's like, you really want to do this? Okay. And then, so he started me from the bottom, which, you know, I, I was happy to do, but you know, I saw the other guys and the other guys, meaning one other guys, so it was only like four staff Yeah, doing things. And I'm like, ah, like, I just want to, you know, just jump in there too. But he just would be like, get the plate, wash the dishes, put it away and like things like that. And all, it started to click, you know, like a year later while like eating or showering. I'm like, oh, that's why he had me do that. Because it all just started to make sense.
2: There's all, there's more to mise en place than just what goes in the nine pan. Absolutely. Right. It's, right. It's, it starts way before that and right. it ends way after right. that. Uh, and even though the focus is obviously what goes on the plate, because that's what goes to the diner. Mm-hmm. There's a hundred other things that are at play there. Right.
3: Because master's is like, when he thinks about like just not like about the food he's also thinking about the ceramics so when he had me put pull out ceramics and put it back he was actually showing me like why he's using those particular ceramic for this particular time for this particular person but without saying it so once we hit a season I saw the same guest I would pull the same ceramic so it started to like kick in like oh he's like oh okay it only took a year but okay here we are and you you end up
2: Getting to touch some fish at Massa, Right. And then uh, you spend time there.
3: And what year did you end up moving to New York? Um, We moved to New York around... Well, the first visit was around 2002 Mm because he was like, we're moving to New York. Go see New York. See if you like it. You know, like, I know I'm asking you, but you don't really have a choice. For me, it was like the most exciting thing. You know, I'm like, sure. You know, I'm totally... Uh, and, and and the reason why I mean, it got to touch the fish because he's like, we're moving to New York. I need you to start doing things, <laughs> not just pulling plates and cleaning the sink a hundred times. And
2: a lot of important things happen at Masa in New York. First, you meet who becomes your partner, yes, right? And right, also exactly. Masa just becomes a massively dominant force in the New York food scene. And then internationally speaking, it garners it accolades that I assume bring in people like you said like you didn't have contact with those people when you were younger now the only people you're seeing come into masa are like millionaires that travel around the world and and seek out these dining experiences like once you get three Michelin stars what
3: changes um I think at masa what the what I noticed is that not much really changed his intensity his focus was always just sort of even kill like it was always that If it's 1 through 10, it was always at 20. Mm -hmm. You know, whether we did two covers or we had zero star. Actually, a lot of the accolades, it wasn't really hung up with no disrespect. It just wasn't exposed. You know, not like no disrespect to other restaurants. That's just what he did. He didn't. He, he
2: knew it, he internalized it, and then he just kept doing what he was
1: doing.
3: I, I think it was more about like he just really was in tune with just the food and the guests. He just wanted to get the best product, do the best thing he can do for the best, you know, for his guest. It wasn't really about anything much. And and sometimes he has to charge a certain way because in order to produ- get those certain products and be able to put in a certain ceramic and XYZ, it's not cheap. Mm hmm. I want to talk about your
2: partnership with Jimmy. You guys meet at Masa. Obviously, you've had a great deal of success together, and you've spent a long time um, in business together We're and working together. One of the hardest things about being in the restaurant business is finding good people and creating – a working relationship uh a friend relationship oh we work on the line together we go out and get drinks you you can have like a million of those um i'm curious how do you complement each other and how did you know that jimmy would be a good partner
3: i I would be a liar if i said i knew you Mm -hmm. know i think we both just sort of gravitated to each other with you know sort of uh food being you know the catalyst for sure uh the food sort of was the just like all my friends really the food is really the the bond (laughs) Uh and uh, his theory his thoughts were very similar to mine and when we didn't agree it still was okay um so that's when you know um or at least i knew that that meant maybe we should pursue this and so when you
2: decide that you really want to open up your own place you both have worked for other people how does shuko come to be how do you find the space and And also, this is more long-winded, but how did you decide what you wanted Shuko to be? There's so many permutations of of, uh, Japanese cuisine, omakase, kaiseki. How did you both drill down into what Shuko would come to be?
3: I think Shuko sort of was a very interesting personal sort of uh, project. Um, You know, at Shuko, we play a certain type of music. Um, a little bit uh, the volume's a little bit higher than normal (laughs)
4: Um,
3: and that's sort of just a reflection of growing up in Los Angeles I think in Los Angeles music is just around us all the time and so uh, my sort of wanting when I had a restaurant was to um, have that sort of uh, I guess feel because I think music is a big part of just everyday life
2: And so when you were working together to kind of define what the restaurant would serve and how it would serve, uh, were there like hours and hours of discussion about we're going to be we're going to serve the food in this way? We're going to be traditional. We're going to be non-traditional, like sourcing all these things that might differentiate shuko from say masa or
3: another omakase experience. Right. Absolutely. I think, uh, shout out to Adam Block. He was, uh, you know, Adam and I spent many, many, many hours. He was the opening chef for us. And we, he also worked at uh, Masa as well. So for, you know, when uh, the opportunity came, we sort of, uh, uh, saw eye to eye on what we thought would work here. Um, <clears throat> you know, uh, just looking at the menu now, like even the apple pie, apple pie ice cream, you know, uh, it's a it's a very personal menu it's a very personal restaurant meaning that be right before shuko my little nephew was uh in new york and 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 uh, we spent a lot of time or he spent a lot of time eating apple apple pies and so when he left i was a little bummed and it was sort of uh i wanted to do something that maybe reflected our our summer and you know uh, my nephew and and then I approached Adam and I'm like, let's do an apple pie. But like doing it in a way it keeps, we're not messing with the traditional apple pie, um, you know, um, and, and Adam totally got it. The hard part was to make the perfect pie. That was, that took months for sure. And it's definitely
2: not something that you would think would cap off a meal. Absolutely. Like at, I, at a nomakasi cost. Right. Restaurant.
3: Well, no one, I think 99.9% nobody got it besides Adam. Yeah, everybody, Jimmy, everybody was like, I don't know what you're saying. You know, Uh, everybody was worried, you know, Um, and so was I. But I'm just like, you know what? Just I think this might work. And I did call Jacob about the apple pie, too. (laughs) And he thought it was a good idea. I want to talk about the
2: business side of things, because when it comes down to it, we talked about art earlier. It's a business. It has to produce money to stay open unless it's just a vanity project but uh people have uh the thought that at such a high price point uh you must be making like huge margins Mm. but um there's something about cost of goods and dealing with seafood and also you referenced like ceramics and how everything has a specific piece that goes with it so can you talk a little bit about sourcing of your products and just in the new york competitive restaurant world uh how do you operate a very small seat restaurant and and make it work from a business perspective
3: right uh, it's very challenging to have a small um literally a small restaurant because you know um just day to day the operation because literally the space is so small that it's sometimes we're working on top of each other. So we're actually very creative on how to maneuver around each other. Um, and um, you know, we have tons of staff at all times um, in order to produce what we want Chico to be. Um, I think it looks a lot more intense because usually uh, restaurants don't have an open kitchen and you don't really see all the staff because they're you know, behind a wall. But at Shuko, everything, the only walls are really the walls that's holding up the, the restaurant and walls downstairs. Otherwise, it's all open. Um, we have one door that opens from the outside inside, <laughs> but otherwise there's really no more doors. Um, so you actually see a lot of activity, and I think that's the cool part of it about it. It might be a little intense to a lot of people. How many people do you have working on sh- at Shuko? Like 30 and, uh, and a 20-seat restaurant. At a 20-seat restaurant. and um, But it takes an army sometimes to just produce, to get ready for service, and then another whole army to do service. Um, and so on a typical
2: service, how many people are on the line, visible to customers?
3: At the sushi side of it, the bar, uh, the sushi bar, we have up to like five or six. But our bar beverage program is back there, too. So then you have like two, a psalm and a beverage and then we have about three servers at all times and then like three or four guys in the kitchen whole you know so there's and the whole different team downstairs prepping prepping and just doing other things yes so it's uh, my my next question was
2: going to be do you find it grueling <laughs> to own your own restaurant uh, and and do you have a a system and as a as a small business owner myself i find that the amount of day-to-day things that pop up that I did not expect can often interfere with what you're hoping your plans were for that day. Do you and Jimmy feel like you have a great system now? You've been open for Mm -hmm. several years. Do things still catch you off guard or or do you have sort of an even smooth flow now that you've been open for several years?
3: I think we have a really good system. I wouldn't say great. We're always striving for great. Um, Even if we were great, I think we would always try to go for greater. Um, I think we have a good system. And when there are curveballs, we have a a team that can sort of adapt to any changes. But as you know, there's like 30 curveballs and a knuckleball that comes at you a day. Mm -hmm. You know, And the days that you don't really have anything coming, you're like, wait, what happened today?
2: (laughs) Is there a a specific dish that's on the menu right now that you can describe that you feel is a really wonderful representation of what you do. Can you uh, talk us through a little bit of what the the prep and the plating process is like of that specific dish?
3: Um, yeah, definitely. We're we're in sing- spring right now. Um, so right now, we're just sort of... Um, I just got back from Japan. I spent a, a month in Japan in Kyushu Island. So I came back just sort of in love with this area of of Japan and so um, we have a fish purveyor out there as well in in Kyushu Island, Fukuoka so we're creating this one dish right now with uh, pretty much 99.9% coming from that area uh, besides the king crab it's a king crab dish but everything in it is even all the way from the sauces is from Kyushu Island and um, that I'm very excited about because um, while i was there i was trying to like think about this dish that i wanted to come back with but representing my 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 month there mm-hmm. and um and this is sort of coming together right now and so what are the components of it um there's uh wakame which is fresh seaweed um it's alive it's pulled out of the water from the ocean and so it's like a, a real live thing it's breathing it's alive and uh it's from kyushu island as well um Umipudo, which is uh, sea grapes, also coming from Kyushu Island. And then um, we have the aka uni that goes with it as well. Um, and that's also from Kyushu Island. Um, and uh, what else am I missing right there? I know. Um, and then uh, there's and then Udo, which is also from Kyushu Island, um, which is like a vegetable. And so obviously that comes as part
2: of a sequential... Uh a meal of several dishes the omakase that you have right now does it are there great variations from day to day and how many items are part of it or um i guess how many plates hit the counter in a traditional omakase when people go to shuko
3: for the we have two menus the one kaiseki is which is a combination of uh non not sushi and sushi and the omakase is like one sort of uh sunomono dish which is like a Right now, it's a a, a trout with a a ponzu dish, um, and then it goes into the sushi, and the kaiseki is a combination of cooked, raw, and meat, temperas, and then sushi. Is there
2: something that you have not achieved yet at Shuko that you think about all the time, maybe... Maybe it's an accolade, maybe it's a, something small like there's a dish that you want to play around with that you haven't been able to get to. i um, curious, because you've been open for several years now, what is something that you are aspiring to do with Shuko?
3: I think the accolades are great, um, and, 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 and I think they're an honor and, and, and um, feel really proud of it. Um, but I know that I don't wake up in the morning or go to sleep thinking about it. I do really think about like the structure of the restaurant and the staff and the team and how we can do things better, how to, how we can do things better for them, how could they could do better for us. And just like a team, how to always make the, the team be better and how do we create a better environment? How do we have everybody just become more of a team? I, I find myself thinking more of that. A lot, and also about dishes, but I spend a lot of time thinking, how do we make these people better? How do we move these things up? From a team perspective, you have 30 people on staff,
2: and one of the best ways to help retain talent is to grow it. And I'm curious if you and Jimmy have plans to do uh, anything... A different location, same concept, different concept. Maybe a bigger Shuko, maybe a different city. It's just one of the best ways to turn your great staff into a great organization. Absolutely. Any Any plans for anything related to that?
3: Sure, that's it's always in the in the pipeline. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, always looking for that next great space. You know, it's like trying to find that next great song. Um, you know, uh, in the near future, we're doing in the summertime, we do a, a pop up all summer long in the Hamptons. Um, and you know uh, some of the team members goes out there as well. Uh, but yeah, we're always sort of looking for the next great spot.
2: As you wake up every single day and you're thinking about all these different things and and you're a business owner and you're balancing your time uh, with Jimmy, what is what's a typical week look like for you if there is one do you do you try to head into the restaurant four or five six days a week like how do you how do you organize your time as the as a partner in the restaurant
3: we're 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 there five days a week Mm -hmm. you know um we're open seven days and and you know we do the traditional five days working two days off um we still work the service Uh, we're very still in it um uh just going back to the team members we're definitely trying to recognize the people that are doing really well and 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 so when that happens we sort of try to put it more on them to kind of grow so that it doesn't always the sun's not always shining on us you know let the sun shine on them a little bit you know uh, and that's also sushi and kitchen you know even servers or prep guys any 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 Staff member, any team member that is doing well, we definitely want to recognize that and and put the shine on it for sure. My last
2: question is basically about, specifically about uh, competition and the New York City dining landscape, which is there are so many choices for people. Uh, Why do you think Shuko um, is special and how do you make it a truly unique experience for a diner when they come in?
3: Um uh, the restaurants in new york uh first, I'm a fan uh, I'm a big sort of fan of all the restaurants in New York. I love my city. I love all the restaurants here. I wish I just had more time to go to all of them because you know I think New York's such a great city and we produce such great restaurants um uh why should you go? <laughs> why should you go so but I think I think Shuko is sort of unique because it's, again, going back to the personal thing, you know, And like, my family came, they were not surprised. They were like, you're not fooling nobody. And I was just kind of asking them, why would you say that? Because they were like, this is what you do in your bedroom when growing up. You know, just play the music, turn the lights down low and act like you're doing something, you know. So... You know, like good friends of mine, cousins or whatever, when they come in, they're like, wait a minute, you know, and some things taste like my grandma's, you know, not intentionally, but I think subconsciously, sometimes you do things like that, you know, and there's a lot of overtone for Jimmy too. You know, it's just not me, but there's things that comes from Jimmy's, you know, inner self as well and thoughts and, um, but a lot of it is like even Richard Block, the designer kind of helped me pull things out of my own thoughts, you know, which I think good designers do. Let everyone know where they can uh, go see you at, at Shuko. Tell
2: everyone the address and the website, please, so that they can come and experience uh, your and Jimmy's mind as as you do every uh, every single night in the East Village.
3: It's, uh, the restaurant is Shuko Restaurant, 47 East 12th Street. It's right below Union Square on uh, the zip codes 1003. <laughs> and the website is shukoNYC.com.
2: Chef, thanks so much for being here, telling us about your story and uh, your travels and your background in French cuisine and, of course, opening your own restaurant in New York with your partner. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, We're taking a little bit of an HRN break, but we'll be back with new episodes soon. I've got plenty of new guests coming at you on the line, and you can, of course, go to heritageradionetwork.org to find all of the 80 episodes of this show and, of course, the other programs that we've got on Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.
0: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food
4: radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org.